Lord God, we thank you for this. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the thank you for the gentle rain falling outside. We thank you. It reminds us of the grace that fills our lives every day. Rain or shine, you give us just what we need. And Lord God, even when you, even when in our eyes you withhold the blessing we think we deserve, it is still your goodness. You still know what we need. We pray you bring it to us this morning. Open our hearts to hear what the Spirit has for us today. Lord, bless the teaching and the preaching of the word uh, later. In Jesus' name, Amen. I'm going to read. Uh, I'd like to open the passage from Second Timothy chapter three before we jump in here. Second Timothy three verse one. But realize this: that in the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these. A heavy passage for us this morning. There's a lot we could say there. It's that, it's that discussion of a form of godliness at the end that I want you to keep in mind as we started in our subject this morning. Um, on December 5th, 1901, Walter... Talk louder? Is that better? Okay. December 5th, 1901, Walter Elias Disney was born in Chicago, Illinois. That name should sound familiar to everyone here. At least the last name. Yeah. Um... So this is, he is known today as, this, it, we're going to be talking about Walt Disney, whose namesake, the na- uh, he's the namesake of the Walt Disney Company and of many, many other things bearing that name today. His parents' names were Elias and Flora Disney, Irish immig- um, second generation Irish immigrants to the United States. He was the fourth of five children. Uh, we're gonna, we'll be talking a little bit about his older brother, Roy. Uh, with whom he with whom he fought and fought and fought and success, and went, ran one of the most successful companies in the world uh, alongside him. We'll be talk, touching on him quite a bit. When you think of her, when you think of the word of the name Disney, what do you think of? Mickey Mouse, Steamboat Willie, princesses. Yes. What else? Animation. A lot of sketchy stuff. Okay. Theme parks, that's right. It certainly is. It is a media empire. They are. They are. And that is not unlike Disney himself, as we'll see here in a minute. Theme parks, cruise lines, islands in the Caribbean, hotels, um, resorts, television. They own uh, ESPN and ABC. Uh, they own, in addition, they, we, they, we all survived last year thanks to Disney Plus. Uh, we all, they, it babysits our children when we need it to. Um, like, whoa now, I'm getting too personal. Yeah, and honestly, uh, the, the Disney coming out on Star Wars and Spider Man and Iron Man. And honestly, if we start listing the things that Disney, ha- that Disney in, is involved in, it's more a question of what it's Disney not involved in at this point. And it all started, what's that? National Geographic, that's right. And it all started 
uh, and it all started with this one man in Chicago. And the formative years of uh, Disney uh, began in 1906 when his family moved to a farm in Marceline, Missouri. These were, for, uh, these were some of the most important years of Disney's life as he grew up there for the next five or six years. His father was a visionary, uh, much like Disney himself would be. Unlike Walt, uh, Elias Disney wasn't very good at much of anything he did. Uh, when he, tried to go to a, he tried to start a farm and did very, very poorly. However, it gave an opportunity for his young, uh, introverted, quiet son, Walt, to, um, to daydream in the hayloft, to, to explore the fields, collect bugs in jars, and to basically daydream his way through school, uh, doodling on the side of his paper. Um, Marceline, Missouri is uh, then as now remains kind of the, um, it remains something of the stereotypical idyllic Midwestern town. It became the model for Main Street USA and Disney World, for any of you who have ever walked down that boulevard in, in Orlando. Um, this was, and this, I, we can't, we can't, I not, cannot stress this idea enough, this idea of honest, solid, simple Midwestern America. Uh, would stay with, this concept would stay with Disney for the rest of his life. He was always looking to capture it and share it with the rest of the, the United States and the world. Um, in 1911, the, uh, the, the Disney farm was doing so badly that his father sold it, moved the family to Kansas City, Missouri. And it was there that, on the top of all the love of nature and simple, and simple um, small American towns, that, Disney discovered, that Walt, uh, Walt Disney first discovered vaudeville and the movies and the cinemas were just kicking off and he used to spend his saturday nights at the matinees um, in high school in 1917 the disney's were back in chicago where disney entered high school and began studying cartooning and art and began to refine his drawing skills and then in 1918 he lied about his age and joined the american red cross to serve right at the tail end of world war one he arrived in europe just at, just after the armistice had been uh, been signed it was interesting little personal note. This is when he began smoking. Many people don't realize that Walt Disney was a heavy smoker all through his life. Larry, you're not in your head. You just need to teach this course, it sounds like. We share a pen. A lot of people grew up with Walt. I grew up with Walt, even though he was long gone by the time I was there. Yep. Yeah, actually, we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about that cartoon you mentioned here in just a minute. Um, so in 1919, he returns to Kansas City, and, um, and he, uh, he and a fellow cartoonist begin to study cell animation. Now, try to forget now, if you go to see a modern blockbuster movie today, basically what you're seeing is an animated film. They have overpaid actors where they cut out their face and stick it onto an animated character so they can fly through the air and shoot laser beams out of their hands. And that's the bulk of most major movies these days. Everything, pretty much every, animation affects everything we see. But back in the early 1900s, animation was in, it wasn't even its infancy. It had just been conceived for practical purposes. At the time, the way animation was done, you would have a camera, and you would point it straight down at a table on a white sheet of paper, and you would have a drawing that you'd cut into little pieces. And you would lay those pieces on top of each other, take a picture, move something slightly, take another picture, move something again, take another picture. And then you'd play those pictures back at 24 frames per, 12 to 24 frames per second, and thanks to your eye's persistence of vision, people would think it was moving in front of you. It's a very similar technique of stop-motion animation, which is still used today. Um, so th that was how it was being done. It was viewed mainly as a gimmick. Um, they would play a few minutes of it before the, you know, before the Saturday, e Saturday evening picture, 
and it was just kind of a distraction. However, there was a new technology called cell animation uh, that Disney and his friend got interested in and began studying. And this was a technology that would basically uh, revolutionize both the animation industry and give the start to the Walt Disney Company. The cell in cell animation refers to a, a clear plastic sheet, a cell. And on it, an animator would draw a picture of a character. He would then, put, he would then layer another cell on top of it and draw the same character again with a slightly different position. And he would do this over and over and over again. And then you would lay that not on top of a white piece of paper, but on top of an illustrated background. And so on that picture would be, say, Mickey Mouse and, uh, and the background of a forest. And, you, and as you were laying down these pictures, taking pictures, you'd be, you'd be animating Mickey walking across the forest floor. Does that make sense? So I've, I go into this detail, well, number one, because I like it. I think it's cool. Uh, but also because you cannot understand Disney without understanding his love of technology and advancing the technology, particularly of media and communication. And so this was the, late, this was the bleeding edge. Uh, there were no computers. Uh, cameras were very, very limited. They didn't even have sound in movies at this time. And so this was the latest and greatest, and Disney got very, very interested in this. He, he and his fellow cartoonists for the next 20 years would begin to develop principles of animation that still affect the way animators work today. Back in the late 1980s, when John Lasseter, the future founder of Pixar Animation Studios, was, was advancing computer animation, he went back to Disney's old notes here from the early 1900s and studied how did the Disney animators do it back in the day. Now let's try to do the same with balls and shapes on our computers. They were doing exactly, this, they were doing exactly the same thing. Um, so in 1923, Disney moved from Kansas City to Los Angeles. His brother Roy was uh, recovering from a long illness, and Disney, wanted, Disney thought he wanted to be a film director at the time. Uh, in 1925, he hired a young lady named Lillian Bounds as an inker. So an inker is someone who takes the animator's pencil drawings and then goes over them in ink on the cell to have a more finished look. Uh, he, ended up, he ended up marrying Lillian about later that same year, and the two, uh, Walt and Lily Disney, would, have two, would go on to have a family of two daughters. Uh, they, their daughter, Diane, and then they adopted their daughter, Sharon. It's worth mentioning, uh, if you've never heard their name, you know, Disney's wife's name or his daughter's name, that was very intentional. Disney, was very, was very, Disney and Lily were very determined to keep their family out of the limelight. Walt knew that, you know, particularly as Walt became more and more famous. There were a lot of high-profile kidnappings at the time of, people taking celebrities' children and holding them for ransom and things like this. And between that and just wanting to have some separation between this, this empire he was running, he always, kept his, he always kept his family very much, uh, family life very separate from his work life. In 1927, Disney finds, so at this point, Disney's just been a struggling artist, just barely making ends meet. And in 1927, he finally finds his great success with the creation of a character named Oswald the Lucky Rabbit. Larry, have you ever heard of Oswald? No. <laughs> Most people have not, and that's because. But this was the first. This was the first big hit of the newly formed Walt Disney Company, and the company produced many, made cartoons featuring Oswald on behalf of Universal Studios to growing commercial success. Unfortunately, in 1928, uh, Disney went to Universal and said, "Hey, we're not getting paid enough for these things. Animation, then as now, is a lot of work. I mean, one of the main reasons major blockbusters are so expensive is not those overpriced actors I mentioned." It's all the animation that has to go into them. And so he said, look, we're not getting paid enough for this. And his, and his producer at Universal basically said, eh, tough. Oh, and by the way, I own the rights to your favorite character, and all your animators are not coming to work for me directly. 
And so his so universe his produce, Charles Mintz, his producer at Universal, basically stole his his popular character and all the animators who worked with him. And it was in 1928 that um, this was a turning point for Disney. He was on his way back from New York, where Universal Studios were located, back to Los Angeles to his studio. And he was depressed because he basically just lost everything he'd been working his whole life for. He was with his wife Lily in the train, and the story of what happens is told many different ways, but I'll tell you my favorite story. He had his sketch pad out, and he was drawing, as he often was, and he began drawing circles. And it's likely he was thinking of a little white mouse that he kept in his studio, his animation studio, and would play with while he was, his mind was wandering. And he put those circles in, he drew two circles and then a big circle in the middle, a circle for the body, and a tail coming out the end. And he showed it to his wife, Lily, and he said, I think I'll name him Mortimer. And Lily wrinkled her nose and said, that sounds pompous. What about Mickey? Mickey Mouse. And so that's how he was, and so Disney didn't know it at the time, uh, but his, uh, but basically the begin his success was only beginning. So he took it back to his, fr uh, his friend, Ub Iwerks, who had been his longtime collaborator. Ub was basically the one who took, Mickey, uh, took Disney's rough sketch of Mickey Mouse and turned him into the fluid, expressive character that we know today. However, what people, many people don't know is that for many, many years afterwards, Walt Disney himself was the voice of Mickey Mouse. That squeaky voice that you started to hear right from Steamboat Willie was Walt Disney himself. Um, so he, so you know, many, many titles to give Walt Disney, voice actor was one of them. And so they went on, so they took this new character, they experimented with him in a couple of shorts, it did pretty well. And then, and then the, a movie called The Jazz Singer came out. It was the first major motion picture with sound. And so Disney saw it and immediately said, I want to do that, let's do that. So he got his animators together and said, we're going to make a cartoon called Steamboat Willie and we're going, to, we're going to synchronize it with sound. There wasn't even any voices at the time. There were some grunts and squeaks that, uh, make, that uh, Walt provided for most of the characters. There was some catchy tunes, but it was all synchronized with the action on the screen. That doesn't sound revolutionary to us today, but at the time, that was unprecedented. Matter of fact, they didn't even know if it would work. So they literally had a screening where they put up a bed sheet and invite a bunch of the family over. And so on the screen, they're projecting out there. They've got a projector outside the window. They're, project, they're projecting it into the, on the screen. And behind the screen, all the animators are banging on pots and pans to, and playing the music uh, in using a timing sheet to keep it in time with the cartoon on the screen. Their test audience loved it. It went on to become a major, major commercial success. And um, it, was an over, it, was an, it was almost an overnight sensation. And after that, Disney, became, Disney who had just lost everything, was now all of a sudden was known internationally. The studio went on great commercial success producing more short films in the vein of Steamboat Willie. And then in 1934, Disney, who was never, Disney was never satisfied for long. Whenever he felt a project had reached, had reached, not perfection, at least the furthest he could take it, he would start, his mind would start looking for something new to do. So in 1934, he got tired of short little five to seven minute cartoons. He wanted to do, uh, he wanted to do a full-length feature film, and he wanted to animate it. No one, no one had ever done it before. Everyone thought he was crazy. He gathered his animators into a room, and he said, and he told them, and he told them the fairy tale of Snow White. And you had these hardened, these hardened men who'd basically been living on shoestring budgets, you know, drawing for their whole lives, and they were all in tears by the, end, by the time Disney got done telling the story. And then they spent the next three years uh, working on this film. It went three times over budget, it cost $1.5 million to create at the time. It was known as Disney's folly, and the industry was convinced this would be the end of this, this crazy guy and his mouse <laughs> and his little, you know, his, and his group of cartoonists. 
It went on to bring in $8 million in revenue, which is a lot of, was a lot of money in 1937. And it launched what we now today we now we recognize today as the golden age of animation. Disney ended up uh, they there was no there was no uh, there was no Oscar there was no Academy Award for animation at the time. So they ended up making up an honorary award to give Disney for the accomplishment. They gave him a, a regular size Oscar and then seven tiny little Oscar statues in honor of it. I mean I'm not kidding. Disney went on to do Pinocchio and Fantasia in 1940. 1941 he did Dum a movie called Dumbo. Um, these movies did not uh, these movies did not perform well, mainly because anybody else know what was going on in the early 1940s? World War II. Yeah, that was not a great time. So they lo basically lost the European box office at that point, and so the and that so after so we had the high of Snow White. Walt Disney Company goes into severe debt. In order to make ends meet, he uh, Disney goes to the U.S. government, and ba and they basically spend all of World War II producing training films. And propaganda films for the American war effort by war bonds, beat the Nazi, you know, Donald Duck fights the Nazis, uh, stuff, stuff like that. It, it was enough to get them through, but it was still a very hard time. They took the company public. Uh, they had to slash, uh, they had to slash salaries, and their animator, the animators of the Walt Disney Company, ended up going on strike. And this was a, this was a terrible blow to Walt. Walt Disney was not an easy man. Walt Disney exuded. Walt Disney on screen exuded this warm, approachable personality. He was known throughout the country at the time as Uncle Walt. And he was just kind of like everybody's favorite uncle. In person, however, he was extremely, he was extremely perfectionistic crit and highly critical. He had a very high standard quality. He knew exactly what he wanted to see. And if you didn't get it, he figured it was your fault and would, t and would focus on telling you what was wrong with it. The words, that'll do, were considered very high praise from Walt Disney in person. And yet, at the same time, and yet, it wasn't because he didn't care. It's just because he, he, believed, he expected that everyone else had the same standards he did and would want to meet them. He typically doled out praise by proxy. So if, you know, so if Danny did a great job as animator's desk yesterday, I, if I'm Walt Disney, I'm not going to tell him directly. I'm going to talk to David and say, you know, Danny's really great. And the assumption is that David will talk to Danny later on, and, you know, and I'll build camaraderie that way. Sometime at work, very often it didn't. Uh, he, you know, he, it was also very hard on him to have to cut salaries because he liked to give big financial incentives uh, for, produce, for those who produce great work. He presumed on a lot more trust than he'd actually developed. And so it was very disenchanting for him when his animators ended up going on strike. He, um, he turned in, it, it turned a lot of his, uh, it turned him very much, it affected him politically, affected him personally. He ended up going on a long hiatus. Um, and it wasn't until 1950 that Cinderella their fourth animated feature was actually released. And true to form, at that point, Disney, uh, Disney was, very, was very much, he was very, he, uh, his involvement in Cinderella was much less than the previous movies, just because his mind was moving into new things. He felt that animation, the animation thing was working, so it was time for him to go see what was next, and he moved into live action film at the time. He even, he even created the genre that we today know as the nature documentary. He literally just, he took a husband-wife team and sent them out into the woods and said, film animals. And so, and, and if the animals don't do what you want, you can poke them and prod them and, you know, get, give things that the BBC world would never do today. Um, but people loved it. People had never seen, you know, Walt loved nature. Most people had never seen animals like this, this close. They'd never seen anything like it. Um, so the first one was a movie called, a documentary called Seal Island. And he went on to produce many of these things. They're, he's not as famous for these today because 
these the early attempts just frankly weren't very good. But they inspired you know, the document, documentary, future documentaries from, the, from National Geographic, from the BBC, some of the amazing, you know, some of the, some of the amazing productions that we've seen since. Uh, along that, he, um, he created the movie Bambi, which was long and expensive and had very poor box office returns because who wants to go to see an, a cartoon and be sad at the end of the movie? So animation's kind of doing its thing. He's working on live action. In 1952, he begins work on a place called Disneyland. And then uh, would later do the same in, with Disney World in 1965. He, before opening Disneyland, while they were in production, he took his team of engineers. They would later become to be called Imagineers. For those of you who've been to Disney World, probably heard that term. And he sent them to every theme park in the country. And he wanted them to go experience everything, make a note of what worked and what didn't and then bring it back. Because at the time, you know, it's not that different today. Most theme parks are, we're going to flip you upside down, we're going to spin you around, we're going to make you sick, you're going to go really fast, and you know, that thrill is kind of the main appeal. And Disney didn't want to do that. There are no rides at any Disney park. They are attractions. Disney, because just like in his animated films, just like in his live action films, Walt was always interested in telling a story and making you a part of it. So he came up with, he was the one who truly developed the idea of themed rides. And so that's not, so it's not just a metal track with a cart on it. No, it's, it's a journey through a pirate village. It's a runaway, rap, it's a runaway tube, tube uh, runaway log flume through an idyllic southern town. Uh, he wanted you to feel like you were a part of the story. And so every experience had to serve the story. And that was the definition of, and that, you know, that really defines everything that he did. I'm, I'm skipping over a ton of material. We could, spend for, you know, we could spend a long time talking about these things. Toward the end of his life, Walt began to grapple with his legacy. What, you know, what was he actually leaving to the world other than you know, other just opportunities to divert and amuse ourselves? He ended up pouring a lot of money into um, art training institutions. He, uh, he helped found the California Institute of the Arts, known as CalArts today. It trains animators, not only for the Walt Disney Company, but for you know, and, but for animation and film studio and special effects studios all over the world. And then uh, he, uh, he, was, he was extreme, you know, many, when, television first, when television first became a, an emerging technology, many in the film industry were very, very worried then, as they are still now, that this, oh, this is going to take away all our profits, this is going to take away our whole business model if people can watch stuff in their, in their homes. And Disney was like, nope, this is a new profit revenue for us. So I, I grew up in the, so I was born in 1983, I'm going to date myself. I was, I was born along with the Super Nintendo, and I was, but I remember growing up in the 90s, and basically, the, for those of you who are young in the audience, the 90s were a time of neon colors, high top shoes, and wearing out the Disney tapes from your local library. Um, and, this, and that's because you know, Disney saw, tele, and that was just one example of the many ways that Disney took his brand and made sure it was not only on the big screens and on its theme parks, off in California or Orlando, but it was in everyone's homes. And of course, we can look around and say, well, nothing's really changed as far as Disney's influence goes, does it? Walt died. Walt, as I mentioned before, Walt was a very, very heavy smoker. And he, this is a fact that he kept very, this was a part of his personality, he kept away from his public persona. Uh, Walt would admit often that there was, there was the man, Walt Disney, who was shy, who was diffident, who was hard to get along with, who smoked a lot, who smoked and drank and swore. And then there was the public persona of Walt Disney. 
and they, you know, the lovable Uncle Walt, uh, who made these great movies that everyone knew. And he, he was very well aware of that divide. And, and unfortunately, the, the, uh, the smoking caught up with him pretty fast, and he died of lung cancer on December 15, 1966. He had just finished uh, helping with the production of The Jungle Book before he passed away. There's so much we could talk about with Walt Disney. I mean, just, just discussing the technology alone. There's their whole YouTube channels designed just to studying the attractions at Disneyland and Disney World that don't exist anymore. And the care, the care and the craft that went into these things. Um, critics and artists today still study his live action as well as his animated work for inspiration. Um, but you know, one of the things that he was, he was an artist, he was an innovator, he was an entrepreneur, he was a voice actor, he was a television host, uh, he considered, and uh, I think he was, he was extremely proud to be an American, an American and a patriot as well. He, uh, he thought of them in all these ways. He was very, very interested. When you think of Disney, think of a man who loved old stories and wanted to tell them in new ways. Because Disney was, Disney was captivated by myths, by legends, by tall tales, by folk heroes, as well as by history and the record of what had gone on before him. If you look at most of his stories, you know, we think of them just springing out of the mind of Walt Disney because we know no other version. You know, when we think of Mary Poppins, we think of, we think of Julie Andrews, we think of Dick Van Dyke, we think of that, that production. We don't think of P.L. Travers and the book that she wrote, uh, that she wrote uh, before all that. Um, Disney would take, he would find stories that already existed and he would make them his own. And he wanted people to experience, and he, because he would read them, he would delight in them and said, everyone needs to experience this. And so he would, he would read A.A. A. Milne, and he would say, Winnie the Pooh is amazing. Uh, he would promise his daughters, I'm going to make a movie of this. And so he, would tur he turned it into a story that everyone could experience. Um, that's a wonderful, wonder it's, it's a wonderful, it's a delightful thing, um, but it's, um, but there's a, but at the end, but when you get done studying Walt Disney, you have to ask yourself, why did he do it? And, you know, it's a question I'm still asking myself. Um, I like this, I read a quote here. This is, uh, this is Neil Gabler's um, monumental biography of Walt Disney. It's a, it's a thick read, as you can see. Uh, Gabler, do, Gabler had full access to all the Disney archives and all his correspondence from, uh, from his family, basically everything. So it's one of the most well-researched biographies. It's, he had some of the closest access to Disney possible. Um, Gabler, Gabler himself is a socialist, so he always had a hard time grappling with Walt's, you know, Walt's particular brand of uh, engaging capitalism and entrepreneurship. That's something that he's kind of at odds with his subject on. He also doesn't, uh, I also wish he would spend a little more time on Walt's, uh, Walt's, Walt's spiritual life and, and relationship with religion, which it's very far, hard to find things on. Walt was, as you might expect, just like the Disney Company today, Walt uh, was intent, Walt wanted to be very inclusive of all perspectives. His, you know, at the center of his worldview was America. This place where people who, from different places, who believe different things, we can all come together and get along. And that's what he wanted more than anything else. I'm going to read here from Gabler's introduction. He says, obviously Disney's work had universal appeal, but in America, with its almost religious belief in possibilities, his urge to wish fulfillment was especially resonant. In both Disney's imagination and the American imagination, one could assert one's will on the world. One could, through one's own power, more accurately through the power of one's innate goodness, achieve success. Indeed, in a typically American formulation, nothing but goodness and will mattered. Disney's best animations, 
were archetypical expressions of this idea. In large measure, they were about the process of a child making his or her claim upon the world about the process of overcoming obstacles to become whatever he or she wanted to be. Similarly, in both Disney's imagination and the American imagination, perfection was seen as an attainable goal. In a world that seemed beyond any individual's control, Disney and America both promised not only dominance, but also improvement. Disneyland was just a modern variant on the old Puritan ideal of a shining city on a hill, as Disney's audio-animatronic robots are just a variant of the American dream of making oneself anew. This is an interesting observation. Uh, Walt, Walt grew up in the Congregational Church, uh, as many of, as I will admit, many of my subjects in the Sunday School have, have been. Uh, his father, Elias, was extremely devout and, and um, strict in, view of, in, in uh, his view of you know, personal piety. Walt was not a church. Walt, um, after high school on, Walt never attended church, though his daughters did. His, I've never found a mention of Christ or Jesus or anything but a broad, shall we say, Judeo-Christian, commitment to Judeo-Christian values from him. He believed in living a Christian life, but it was very much an outward, it was very much an outward thing. Toward the end of his life, a journalist in, a journalist in California asked him for his views on faith. And I'd like to read from this extended quote from Disney uh, on, on the, where, where he viewed the place of, uh, of God and faith and particularly prayer in his life. Disney wrote, Every person has his own ideas of the act of praying for God's guidance, tolerance, and mercy to fulfill his duties and responsibilities. My own concept of prayer is not as a plea for special favors, nor as a quick palliation for wrongs newly committed. A prayer, it seems to me, implies a promise as well as a request. At the highest level, prayer not only is a supplication for strength and guidance, but also becomes an affirmation of life and thus a reverent praise of God. Deeds rather than words express my concept of the part religion should play in everyday life. I have, constantly, I have watched constantly that in our movie work, the highest moral and spiritual standards are upheld, whether it deals with fable or with stories of living action. The, this religious concern for the form and content of our films goes back 40 years to the rugged financial period in Kansas City when I was struggling to establish a film company and produce animated fairy tales. Many times during those difficult years, even as we turned out Alice in Cartoon Land, and later in Hollywood, the first Mickey Mouse, we were under pressure to sell out or debase the subject matter or go commercial or one way, in one way or another. But we stuck it out, my brother Roy and other, royal, other loyal associates, until the success of Mickey Mouse and Silly Symphonies finally put us in the black. Similarly, when the war came to the United States in 1941, we turned, our profitable, we turned from profitable, popular movie making to military production for Uncle Sam. 94% of the Disney facilities in Hollywood became engaged in special government work, while the remainder was devoted to the creation of morale-building comedy, short subjects. Both my study of scripture and my career in entertaining children have taught me to cherish them, but I don't believe in playing down to children, either in life or in motion pictures. I didn't treat my own youngsters like fragile flowers, and I think no parents should. Children are people, and they should have to, learn to, they should have to reach to learn about things, to understand things, just as adults have to reach they want to grow in mental stature. Life is composed of lights and shadows, and we would be untruthful, insincere, and saccharine if we tried to pretend there were no shadows. Most things are good, and they are the strongest things, but there are evil things too, and you are not doing a child a favor by trying to shield him from reality. The important thing is to teach a child that good can always triumph over evil, and that is what our pictures attempt to do. Thus, whatever success I have had, in bringing clean, informative entertainment to people of all ages, 
I attribute in great part to my congregational upbringing, my lifelong habit of prayer. To me today, at age 61, all prayer by the humble or highly placed has one thing in common, supplication for strength and inspiration to carry on the best human impulses, which should bind us together for a better world. Without such inspiration, we would rapidly deteriorate and finally perish. But in our troubled time, the right of men to think and worship as their conscience dictates is being sorely pressed. We can retain these privileges only by being constantly on guard, fighting off any encroachment on these precepts. To retreat from any of the principles handed down by our forefathers, who shed their blood for the ideals we still embrace, would be a complete victory for those who would destroy liberty and justice for the individual. Now, I don't know y'all's own impression of that, but I found myself like agreeing with every sentence and then disagreeing with the very next one, just kind of back and forth. Very comp you know, complicated guy. You cannot help but like and respect him in both his struggles and his victories, both. Uh, and, yet, and yet the fear I have is I look on, a world, on the world we live in, a world that Disney has made for practical purposes, is there is no, there is no, I'm having no luck with this thing this morning. We live in a world that Disney made, and it is a world without Christ at its center. And when you strip away a lot of fine commitments and a lot of great lessons that we can learn, this was a man who viewed man. This was a man who viewed man as God. Everything is about everything about about his vision, his will. You know, his will that he can impose upon the world, and conveying that to you know the men and women who come to see his pictures. Um, that's you know, and that's. Uh, yeah, there's no simple there's no simple summary I can give of Walt Disney, except to say let us let us keep Christ at the center of our lives, because I think even Disney realized at the end, you know, what have I? I you know, I laugh when I read that that line about um, that he says adults have to reach for what they attain and children should have to do the same. And I think about my own children when they're not feeling well and we just and you know they were just watching Disney Plus and they're just sunk into the cushions and they'll stay there for hours until I come and you know chase them out of there. And I think <sighs> that's Disney's legacy. <laughs> and he would he would be as disappointed as I am to see that. He wanted he was trying to create stories that would inspire, that would cultivate imagination, that would and that would you know that would drive people to reach out and attain things just like he had. Um, and unfortunately today, his, his company is far more known as an opportunity for escape and for diversion more than anything else. And of course, and that's, we're not even touching on the nefarious things that I think if you create a company that wants to serve, you know, wants to you know, is more focused on the people than the God who made them, then when the people change, your message will have to change. And that's always the, that's always the way of art. Art shapes the people who view it, and then it's in turn shaped by the people who see it as well, which is why we now have gay pride parades and down the down Main Street USA and Disney World and uh, you know we start we're starting to see broken you know broken family we start to see broken families instead of the you know the intact families that Disney would have valued and wanted wanted to serve it's about the end of everything I wanted to say this morning um, I know things got muddled there at the end it's always hard to put a it's always hard to put a nice easy conclusion on a human life uh, because we are we are fallen creatures we mingle with God's grace, both special and common. Uh, any thoughts or questions or observations here as we wrap up? Mm -hmm.
Now, yeah, interesting. Right. I think he understood at most half of what prayer is about. His prayer was outward focused. Uh, he was dismissive. He was dismissive of seek, uh, he, he called it. He was dismissive of what he called a palliation for sins and wrongs, which, frankly, Disney is like the most of us. We need to repent. And we need to deal with our sin for outward focus. I think he's. I think he's a good. I think he's a good type of a trend we're seeing in a lot. Uh, I think Renton touched on this with Finney, where our turn moves from the gospel, the gospel and what Christ does, to the social gospel and what we do. Which there's nothing wrong with that, as long as it's founded on Christ and not our own wills, as you, as you put it. Mm-hmm. As all biographers do. Yep. Even if you're, even in the midst, even when you're busy and trying to do a good thing, Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Yeah, I wouldn't. Yeah, I think it's. I think it's a tragic one, really. And it. And that's why I read from Second Timothy this morning, but particularly that line about holding to a form of godliness, uh, but denying its power. I think Disney taught and believed many, 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 many good things. And I think to this. Well, I mean, I, I, my kids still watch Disney movies, and I still think they're worth watching. There are things there, um, but they. But you know, I, there are also opportunities for my children to learn to say, "Kids, what's good about this?" Now, what's not good about this? What's missing? What's being said? What's being taught to you? Uh, what's being taught to you in addition to the good versus evil theme? Uh, I, think that's the, I think that's the charge I would leave with you all here at the end is understand Disney, understand the man behind the mouse a little bit more so that when you see his work and the work that his legacy has produced, don't never take it for granted. Always remember there was a troubled, struggling, talented, fallen man uh, behind all of this. And so where he was right, praise him with your children. And, where he was, and, and then where he was wrong, point that out and grapple with it as well. We have, there is no corner of this life where we can simply sit back and veg and say somebody else take the wheel for a bit. Um, this is an urge for, uh, you know, the word discernment is overused, uh, but it is no more, nowhere more needed than in the world we live in today, where we are inundated with <laughs> the, Disney the messaging of the Disney Empire and many, many others inspired, made in its likeness today. Uh, and we will, be, we will be taught many, many, many different Gospels than the true one. Uh, it's time we need to grapple with that. It has. And that's part of its, that's part of its power, is that it's so versatile. It's message. It's you know. It has some basic. It has some basic things we all identify and trust, but its commitments can change. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Everyone did that, so he didn't hide it. Yeah, that's true. Yep. Okay. Yep. Yeah, that was quite a story. Half, half the sources I read said she loved the movie, and the other half say she hated the movie. I have no idea. Yeah. <laughs> Perfectionism, yeah. <laughs>
Right. Yep. <laughs> yeah, I know what I'm talking about. Greg, did you have some? No, he was never satisfied. Yes. Yeah, I know, and I have a hard time. I have a hard time deciding where Disney was just in it for the money, or just in it for personal satisfaction or fame. He certainly loved all those things, but he also spent money like water. I mean, I mentioned his relationship with his brother Roy, and we. we I wish we had more time to talk about that. Roy's Roy Disney's um, daughter always knew when, always knew when Roy had a ba- when her father had a bad night with Uncle Walt because he would come home late at night and slam the door on the way in, and that was many many times because. Walt was a visionary. He was like, we need to do this. I don't care how much it costs. Spare no expense. And Roy was always the pragmatist and the guy with the eye on the bottom line. And he's like, no, we can't afford it. So Roy, the, the way, uh, the way I, want, I read it by one author was, Roy was determined to stay out of debt, and Walt was, con- was, con- was committed to getting him into debt all their lives. And that's basically the ran the Walt Disney Company. Um, so if, if Walt was just in it for the money, uh, he did. He was pretty bad at that. He was pretty bad at that portion. Um, but yeah, I agree with you. He was never he was never satisfied, and I think that's and that's the thing I you know that's the thing that's the thing that always drives me to study Disney more. He's such a fascinating man with all the things you get into. But at the end of it, you have to wonder what was he looking for? Was he looking for? I think he you know was he grasping at transcendence in the best way he knew how, and in his pursuit you know accomplished some of the most amazing amazing things this country has ever seen in the last hundred years. Was this just a man trying to fill, like we all are, trying to fill that God-sized hole in his chest? And he did it with, he was trying to do it desperately with his own labors. Or was he just a perfectionist? Was he just, uh, you know, was he just a classic American entrepreneur? You see all these things in him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think we can learn that. Yeah, absolutely. We should be just as passionate. We should just be. We should be passionate as Disney over more lasting, more enduring things. Yep. Amen. All right. What? See. All right. It is that time. Let's close in prayer. Lord God, I have. Concrete childhood memories, in which Mickey Mouse and Robin Hood and the rescuers are our vital parts. Lord God, fictional characters created by a mere man, uh, you know, live in my mind as fully as many real people that I've known. And Lord, as I think about that, as we all think about that, we 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 are set back in wonder, the minds and the hearts and the imaginations that you created to us, created for us. Lord, we use so unlike Disney. Uh, we use so little of the tools that we've been given. And Lord, in that, he is a rebuke to us. Lord, let us, Lord, as we ponder our creator, even today, and the one who made us, let us, uh, Lord, let us praise you for the creativity, the creativity, the drive, the determination, uh, and the will to improve and succeed that you have given us. 
And Lord, but Lord, let us not be focused on earthly things. Let us be focused on building your kingdom on earth and, and preparing our souls for the world, uh, the world to come. Heavenly Father, I don't, know if we'll see, I don't know if we'll see Walt Disney in heaven one day. But Lord, you have given him, you've given a remarkable testimony to us uh, to learn from him, both what he did well and what he failed in. So Lord, teach us humility. Teach us humility, I pray. Lord, prepare us to worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.